Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Elton, we have a podcast. Diving, diving deep. deep. Diving deep into all things Texas. Both on and off the field. Here's Sean Pendergast. And Pro Football Hall of Famer. The General. Sean McClain. Welcome. Welcome. To Utopia. Hey, hey, welcome in, everybody. Utopia Football Podcast. It is the week, well, we'll call it the Week 8 Mailbag Edition. We, took, we look forward here on the podcast. So it's Week 8 Mailbag, mailbag at gmail.com. If you ever want to email a question, a comment about anything having to do with the Texans, the Astros, the NFL, really anything, John and I love the questions, um, mailbag at gmail.com. I'm Sean Pendergast, one half of Payne and Pendergast in the mornings on Sports Radio 610. Joined, as always, by the Hall of Famer, my good friend, and uh, uh, senior Texans columnist for SportsRadio610.com, of course, GalleriesSports.com as well, John McClain. John, how we doing? Doing great, Sean. Thank you for having me as always. Of course, John. This is it. I'm, I'm not having you on. This is our podcast, John. I'm, you're not an invited guest. You're a you're a, a co-investor in this thing. So I always feel I always feel like a guest because that's what I've been since I've been on the radio. So, going back to 1976 yep no you're in this thing man this is me and you baby so um we're, we're gonna do some mailbag questions here in just a moment john before and we it, it, i'm excited about this because we got some astro questions in here too so Good. yeah so the astros of course as we record this they are three days from starting the world series this should drop on wednesday um so hopefully you guys are getting this podcast if you if you're just listening to it for the first time be sure to subscribe so you're part of the crew that's getting it automatically sent to your phone or your iPad or wherever it is you get your podcast. John, you brought up something interesting before we went on the air. Um, you know, the odds, various odds are becoming more and more woven into the tapestry of our football consumption these days because the the boom in gambling. Um, you were a little surprised that Damian Pierce, especially with the injury to Brees Hall in New York, Damian Pierce, not the favorite right now for Offensive Rookie of the Year in the National Football League. No, that would be Kenneth Walker the third. So he moved up to replace Rashad Penny in Seattle. Penny lost for the season in a contract year, and and he started I think two games. He's been great. Seattle is a surprising first place team, and you know you're looking at coaches of the year. Brian Dable's heavily favored first. Nick Sirianni, but Pete Carroll. My goodness, everybody's picking him to be one of the worst teams being able to get a quarterback near the top of the draft. And here they are leading the NFC West to me, Pete Carroll would have to be in the top three, but to the running back, everybody had Brees all one. Now they've got Walker one because those guys play on winning teams and 
Pierce plays on a terrible team. Yeah, and and I think what what I would remind people when it comes to those odds, because it, it, when you and I were talking off the air, you sounded a little surprised by Walker being number one and Pierce being number two. Those are odds. So be, you know these are actual sports books taking money on who is going to win the award. Um, you know, then they need to put a number out there they think is going to make them money. And I think that that shows that despite the fact that he's only started, he being Walker only started two games, but Pierce five is that one Walker is going to be the guy the rest of the year. As you point out, Penny is out. His first two games have been really, really good. And he's on a better team than Damian Pierce, who is, as you pointed out on pace for 1500 yards, but Boy, with the amount of usage he's getting right now, John, that's the part. I have no doubt that Damian Pierce, if given opportunities, is going to continue to churn out yardage on a per carry basis. What I wonder is, can he sustain the level of usage? He's never been used even close to this degree at the collegiate level. Well, he only had 24 carries, 20 carries Sunday and 24 touches. And something that is should be clear to everybody, except maybe Pep Hamilton and Lovey Smith, he's better on getting the ball as a receiver than Rex Burkhead. And then when they put in Dario Gumbawali at the end of the game, he showed so much more quickness and elusiveness than Burkhead. When I went back and watched the game, Burkhead goes out there in the flat. They put a guy on him because they know there's a good chance he's going to get the ball. And when he gets it, boom, he's down. He has no elusiveness, no power, no quickness. Where with Pearson and Goomba Wiley, I think they would have a much better twosome. And I hope at some point Pep Hamilton realizes that. But if I'm thinking if Pierce runs 20 times a game and gets four or five catches, put him up around 25 that's not going to be too much for a young guy who was not used up in college yeah. like Walker was. Walker had a lot of carries. He did. He I, was think a- it, I think what happened at Florida is actually good for what's going on with Pierce this season. Yeah, I I guess it just becomes how, how adjusted is his body to being able to take that pounding. No, you're right. I'd rather he have had the lack of usage at Florida that he had Damian Pierce. And you just answered, I think, John, we had multiple, <laughs> multiple emails and tweets, as you can imagine to us about Dario Gumbawale and his five catches for 54 yards at the end of that Raiders game. Uh, Rex Burkhead, if you're looking for symmetry also had five catches in that game for 11 yards. So a uh, total of 11 yards, not 11 yards per catch like Dario Gumbawale. I don't know, John, you you uh, watch Lovey Smith's press conferences each week, and he talked about Agumbawale in his Monday press conference and seemed to be open to using him more. Is that a Lovey call? Is that a pep call? Do you think we see more of Agumbawale moving forward? How do you think this thing plays out? If Lovey wants to flex his muscles and tell Pep what to do, like don't give Rex Burkhead more carries than Damian Pierce, like he did in the first game. Of course he can do it, but mm-hmm. his one reason in keeping Pep, who had other offers, was to let him have control of the offense. And if he wants to play Bugs Burkhead, that's fine. But when you look at Burkhead, and I don't care how smart he is, how experienced he is, you know, how tough he is. The fact is he cannot run like a Goombawali. He just can't. And a Goombawali's a pretty good receiver too. It's not like you want him to carry 15 times. Just give him five or six seven times to touch the ball while Pierce is getting a breather. Um, We got a question here. Let's get into the mailbag, John. And you can, again, if you want to, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to get a question read on the air, we'll take good questions at HOU mailbag 
at gmail.com. Not all the questions make it onto the podcast. You got to be good questions, but, uh, but we appreciate everybody who does send them in and certainly appreciate you listening to the pod. Uh, Jose, I'm sticking with the running back theme here, John. Um, he talks about Antonio Gibson for the uh, commanders. And he actually, Jose sent this question in a couple of weeks ago. And I said, I'm going to save this for closer to the trade deadline. I don't know if the timing's great on this question, but I think it leads to a, it leads to a broader question about the Texans in the running back position. At the time, the question was Gibson is too good of a player to only get three to five touches per game. Like he is in Washington. This is where I'll hit pause and say he did get 10 carries in the game in the win over the Packers this past weekend for 59 yards continuing. He's the perfect kind of back that can catch the ball and make a play. Wouldn't be too expensive. And is a perfect compliment to Damian Pierce would a trade for Antonio Gibson be for real or fugazi? It would be Fugazi. Texans not going to the playoffs. They're not going to give up draft choices for a guy that was a, what, a third-round pick. No, there's no way they're bringing in another running back. They don't even use a guy they got in a Goomba Wally. Yeah. No, John, I guess this just to play devil's advocate here real quick um, is that, you know, they? I think we all can agree they need – there needs to be a different complement to Damian Pierce other than Rex Burkhead. We've we've talked about that just a minute ago. Um and look, James Robinson just went for a conditional sixth round pick. That's a guy who's got a thousand yard season here in the last couple of years um, to the Jets from the Jags. We're not talking major Christian McCaffrey draft capital for, for guys like this. If it were like, and we know Nick is not afraid to throw around day three picks just to see if he can hit on some, some lotto tickets. You know, he, he, I think he values the day one and day two picks. I think the day three picks, Nick will just, he'll just fire those around like he's at a casino playing roulette sometimes. Is it the craziest thing in the world to think the Texans at the trade deadline might flip a sixth or a seventh for somebody at a position of need? Uh, at a position of need, but not running back, because that's not a position of need. A backup is a position of need, and they might have the guy right there on their roster. Yeah. Why would they trade for somebody else when they won't even look at who they got on their own roster? Because Gibson's a good player. I don't know, John. Gibson's a better player than a Goomba Wale. Yeah, um, they're not trading Gibson. Yeah. He was their leading rusher last season. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, um, but they do like Brian Robinson, the kid out of Alabama, but I, I, I see what you're saying. All right, um, let's mix in an Astros question. Let's kind of go back and forth here. This is fun. Nathan um, Nathan uh, emails in, do you think the Astros slam the window closed for the Yankees and that the Yankees need to, okay, need to tear it down and rebuild? Let me just pause right there, John. The Yankees are never going to tear it down and rebuild a la the Astros back in 2011 or what we're used to seeing as a teardown and rebuild with the Texans or the Rockets. But I think it is an interesting question about the Yankees side of things, John. I listened to a lot of New York radio over the last couple of days, and there really does seem to be a movement in New York that they need to, they need to stop going for the quick fix, older baseball team thing and really take a good hard look at their organization from top, and I'll say top being Brian Cashman, to the to and through the minor leagues because the team they're chasing right now has found a formula that's going to sustain them the Astros that is for the next at least the next five to six years. First of all, um, I wouldn't surprise me if Aaron Boone didn't get fired, mm -hmm. even though they won ninety nine games. I mean, they had a really good year, but they got swept in the playoffs. That's you know getting falling short of the World Series has become commonplace. 
And I don't know what Al Steinbrenner thinks about Cashman. I'm guessing he thinks very highly of him. They have a good farm system. They trade away players for veterans. There's a lot of things they need to do on that team. They need to figure out who's going to be their leadoff hitter. I have never seen a team make so many changes yeah. at the top of the order as Aaron Boone did this season. So, you know, they, they've stuck with their shortstops. They've got two talented young shortstops, but – I, they've got a good – I think they've got some pitchers. They had injuries. They had injuries. Astros, other than Michael Brantley, they were so fortunate on injuries this season. Mm-hmm. But I could. I don't think that Steinbrenner's going to stand for what happened without somebody's head rolling, and I'm, I'm guessing it'll be Boone's and possibly Cashman's. But yeah. Cashman's lasted a long time. And is he going to fire him after a 99-win season? Yeah. You know, along those lines, I was listening to you with uh, John and Landry doing the leg hiking, and I heard you say something about James Click. And we know that Dusty and James Click are both operating without long-term contracts right now. They're both in the last year of their deals. Reports are from John Heyman with the New York Post that Dusty is going to be asked back in 2023, and and I think he should be. Um, James Click, I'm not as sure. If the Astros win the World Series, I, I don't want to misquote you, John, but you said something interesting on uh, in the loop when I was listening that you thought that if James Click got replaced after the Astros win a World Series, that Jim Crane would get raked over the coals for that around baseball. I don't know that I agree with you on that, but can you? Am I? Am I? Do I have that right, John? As far as what you said, absolutely, General Manager. You bring him in in terrible circumstances. He goes one game short of the one game short of the World Series, lose a World Series, win a World Series. I think Jim Crane would be blasted from coast to coast by baseball people for firing somebody that had helped put them in that situation. I also think whatever the differences are with he has with Click, he's still the boss. They still what do what he wants to do. I just don't see him getting rid of it. I just don't see it. Yeah, I I uh I don't know that I agree with you on that, John. I don't know. You think I, Crane wouldn't get ripped for firing I, a GM I, who won a World Series? Raked over the call. I don't know that he would, John. I uh the I mean, look, keep in mind they just won the World Series, you know, and he's the owner of the team. Like he, uh, you know, I think Jim Crane. Some of it might have to do with the fact that Jim Crane has has uh been raked over the coals before for things that I think people view as far more egregious than replacing a GM. Um, you know, so maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's sort of a, a bar where they look at Jim Crane and they're like, okay, well, this is just a guy who is, you know, who, who holds, he is a very involved owner when it comes to personnel, just because the Astros win the world series. I could see Jim Crane looking at it saying, okay, did they win the world series because of James click? Can I do better? You know, this is Jim Crane came into baseball as a guy who started his own company. He He's not a career baseball guy where he feels like he's got to operate with. the. Clearly, he doesn't feel like he has to operate by these unwritten rules that everybody's got to have at least a year left on their contract. This whole lame duck notion. I think Jim Crane looks at it the way he looks at a business, which is if I feel like I can do some aspect of my business better. It doesn't matter that I'm creating all kinds of value for my shareholders. I need to find the best way to do things. If he doesn't think James Click is the best guy for the job, then, then, and somebody can do the job better, he's going to replace him. And I, I think people kind of know that that's the deal with Jim Crane now. I'm not saying that, that he won't get raked over the coals by some people, 
But I don't think it's going to be one of these things where everybody is looking at Jim Crane like, what are you doing? Like, where the, where the whole sport is just where it's it's just it's something that overtakes baseball or something like that. It'd be hard to be better than winning a World Series. And part of my opinion comes on that from reading and listening to national people on MLB radio and MLB TV. Yeah. Uh, former players and coaches and then reading the influential media persons, all of whom think it's preposterous that he would get rid of either one of them if you win a world series no i get it i yeah no i see what you saw fan people in houston might be much more tolerant because they've seen crane let springer go let correa go yeah good chance verlander's going to be gone but who told him that pena was going to be able to step in somebody had to tell him that i'm doubting i doubt that he figured that out on his own yeah. Was it Click? Was it one of the yeah. other personnel people? Dusty? Somebody? It just seems like they got a really good thing going right now. And I put a lot of stock in a GM. Some people don't think they're as important in baseball as they are in football, and maybe they're not. But I just I can't see whatever Crane's differences are. His differences are with Click, and it's not kept them from winning. Yeah, it hasn't. I, I guess. I mean, I. I... I would say that GMs are incredibly important in baseball to wit James Click's predecessor, Jeff Luno, who's the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest GM of any sport in the history of this city. Um, I mean, I, th- I think Luno was Luno was a deal maker. And I don't know that Crane views James Click as a deal maker. You know, like I think I think it's easy to look at this team. And yeah, there's certainly there's some decisions that probably have Click's fingerprints on them. But this is still largely Luno's team that's doing this stuff, you know. I think that's the point. Yeah. He's made some good moves, though. They brought in some really good pitchers. Yeah. All right. Um, so, I, yeah, good. I just wanted to dig into that with you. I thought it was interesting when you said it on the air. And, we, you know, in this format, we've got a little more time to dig into stuff like that. All right, let's go back to uh, a little um, a little bit of football. Let's go to uh, Chris in Atlanta has a question about Lovey Smith. I've always been a fan of Lovey Smith. But unfortunately, I think he simply passed his prime as an effective NFL coach. That's on full display when he can't make adjustments to stop the run week after week. The question is, do you think it's too soon for the fan base to want to move on from Lovey Smith? Well, it doesn't give a rat, you know, what, what the fan base thinks, Chris. Fact is, uh, when you watch the game, go back, tape it, watch it in slow motion like I do. Guys are just getting beat up front. Yeah, It's amazing. Linebackers are getting beat. The linemen. Rasheem Green, Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison, they charge up the field. They get blocked inside. The back bounces outside. And then the linebackers can't stop them. And so the DBs have to be the leading tacklers. I don't think that's Lovey's fault. He calls the defense. And more and more people in the NFL are going to a system that he plays with two deep coverage, which is one reason scoring's down so much. You're not seeing as many big plays as you have. And they're making them have long time consuming drives. All I know is Lovey Smith will not be a one and done. Yeah. That was a follow up question from Chris, actually. You think it's remotely possible the Texans would move on from another head coach in consecutive seasons? I, I think, I, and, you know, unless Lovey wants out, I think there's zero chance that he's let go. I think he's the head coach in, in at least 20, at least 2023. Do you think he could be a two and done, John? They absolutely could if they yeah. don't show the kind of improvement that Nick Casario and the McMahon family want to see. This is the second year of a rebuild from an organization that was torn up. You can't make all these changes in one or two off seasons. Next year is going to be paramount because they have 
12 picks. They'll have John Mechie like an extra two. Yeah. They've got to get the court. They've got to get the quarterback. It would be so good for this organization if Davis Mills played even better than he did Sunday and they won a few games and they could justify having him as a quarterback another season. And then you'll use those two number ones and their other picks on players they need on both sides of the ball, but especially in their front seven. Yeah, that's that leads right into the next question from Wale. Um, he says, first, it seems like the Texans defense is still enjoying its bye week. Um, says, uh, what is the likelihood of the team loading up on the other needed positions through the draft and wait an additional year for Mills evaluations? I mean, obviously, John, you, you raised that just now as a possibility. Um, what to what level do you think Mills needs to rise for that to become uh, a probability as opposed to a possibility, I guess? I don't know that it'll be a probability. This is supposed to be a great quarterback draft led by C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young and uh, Hendon Hooker and um, Will Levis. And uh, Nick, the following year might not be. Mm -hmm. It might be like this year. If you think you could need a quarterback and you got a chance, you better get it. You can get the other players to fill in. If you make the right decisions in personnel and free agency, you can fill in those other positions. But first and foremost, he's got to be the quarterback. And say they have the first pick and they have C.J. Stroud, one and Bryce Young, two, or vice versa. They got to take that quarterback. Oh, I'm not a CJ Stroud guy. Have you watched enough of the 2023 class of quarterbacks, John, to form an opinion on who the uh, uh, who the apple of the McLean eye is right now? Uh, nobody. I read a lot about what all the people I respect say. Stroud's had ten touchdowns, one interception in the last two weeks. Bryce Young, who's very small. He's not small and thick like Russell Wilson. He's not fast and quick like Kyler Murray, but he's really good. He's team leader. He's smart. He's accurate. And there's some people worry, even today when smaller quarterbacks play, about the beating. Could he stand up to it? Anybody comes here in the past has taken a beating, and Davis Mills is not because the line, the line is playing better. But what we think right now isn't going to mean jack to where these guys end up because the truth is what they do during the season doesn't mean anything. It's what they do after the season in shorts and T-shirts and teams deny it, but that's a fact. We see it every year. Yeah. Uh, the Wally's final question on that front was what are the 2024 draft prospects look like at QB? I, I mean, I'll say this. It, uh, some of it depends on who comes out for 2023. I think all the guys, John, you just named are all planning on, on coming out for the draft would be my guess. Um, I, I will say this, John, I talked to John Harris, whenever I need to talk about draft stuff. And I know you, John also respect John Harris's opinion. Yes, I do. Nobody watches more college football than John Harris through an educated prism too. He really likes that class in 2024 with Caleb Williams, the Oklahoma transfer who's at USC um, Jackson Dart, the USC transfer, who's at Ole Miss. Um, Quinn Ewers, the Ohio State transfer, who's now at University of Texas. Is there a theme here? Yes, there's free agency in college football. That's the theme. Everybody starts one place and ends up another place. Um, but I, I say all that to say that uh, a very educated opinion out there, John Harris says, and eh, the QB for the future could be in that 2024. I just – I I – I wonder, John, if Davis Mills is just average, which I think is his ceiling, honestly, is probably average. I mean, I, 
Huh? It might be. Yeah. And, and so that, that's where I think his ceiling is. So if they if they choose to roll with Mills somewhere slightly below his ceiling, i.e. slightly below average, I do wonder how this fan base would handle another year of no concrete hope at quarterback with the hope at quarterback still playing on Saturdays, not being on the roster. I, I, I do wonder that um, that's a lot of trust as a fan to place in Nick Casario, you know? Well, the team's terrible this year and they sold 69,000 tickets. Not all of them show up, of course. Yeah. And that's why I think you can't look at 2024 about a quarterback that's way too far ahead. Yeah. That's why they got to get a quarterback in this draft, unless they decide we don't think any of them are worth picking that high. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, let's uh, let's keep it moving. Um, Ryan emails in. By the way, you can email houmailbag at gmail.com. Uh, Brandon Cooks has been liking tweets on Twitter about him getting traded. Do you think a trade happens in the next week, especially with Nico possibly being out with an injury? We should mention the Texans today signed Tyron Johnson, uh, former Texan practice squad slash training camp body, most recently with the Raiders, uh, which seems to be an indication that Nico Collins might be out. But, John, Brandon Cooks, um, at least on social media, doing things that have people buzzing about him getting moved. Well, first of all, what would somebody give up for him? A six or a seven? John Lopez is talking about a four. No way somebody gives up a four for Brandon. He's not playing well for whatever reason. Now, people watch tape. They can watch him and they can tell, is he not getting open? Is he getting open and Davis Mills is not throwing to him? Is he not the first read and Mills is going to his first read? They can see things like that. If I am Nick Serio, I'm trading him. Problem is, they have 12 draft choices already. You don't want 12 draft choices on your roster. And that's why I think he'll trade some for 2024. You don't want a team to be too young. And so stockpiling 15 or 16 picks makes no sense this year. But what it maybe he does it for a pick in 2024 when he has 10. Or, uh, but or, I think I think that he'll. I think there's a good chance he'll be traded if somebody wants him. Yeah, I, I don't know, John. Well, first of all, I I think that the the notion of trading for 2023 and you have all those picks, 15 picks or whatever it would be, you know, if they got more picks for anybody, Cooks or you know Jerry Hughes, whatever. Um, I do think that we've watched Nick operate to where okay, he's he could have 15 picks there's a good chance he walks away from the draft with 10 players because he uses those picks to maneuver. He doesn't view them as players. He views them as currency to maneuver around and get guys that he wants. So I would start there. I, John, I don't know how much you've looked at contractually with cooks. Um, It's bad. It's a massive dead money hit. If they trade him, I I don't think he gets moved because I don't think, I think if I'm Nick Casario and you're about to take the cap hit is a monster cap hit, like over $20 million to trade Brandon cooks because of how they've structured his contract extension. If I'm Nick, I go, okay, well, I'm, I don't even have 20 million in cap space right now to, to, to uh, 
facilitate this trade. So they'd have to move some money around, which means restructuring other guys. Uh, and then if I'm Nick, I'm going, okay, now I'm taking a $20 million cap hit to trade this guy. I need a first round pick for that. Like I, you know, you're basically buying a pick at that point. You know what I mean? Like you're spending cap space to get a better pick. If I'm a team trading for Brandon cooks, even though the Texans will have paid a lot of the freight on that contract, I'm to your point, he hasn't played anywhere close to where I would be giving up a first round pick, even if he were on a minimum salary deal, (laughs) you know, like it's um, so I just don't think the numbers are going to work out unless Brandon cooks gets to gets behind the scenes. So agitated with being a Houston Texan still that either the Texans a feel like, okay, we just need to move on. Like, but I can't see him being a cancer like that or two, if he really, you know, has like, sits down and collaborates with the team and they decide to do like sort of a Mark Ingram situation, you know, where they kind of work together to find a spot for him, but he's too good a player and he's too expensive to do that right now. I just don't, I just don't think the numbers work out on a cook steal. Uh, Ryan. If, you're, if you're trying to help Davis mills, you don't trade his, his leading receiver. Yeah, I would because agree. If you, Nico Collins and guys don't come back quick from hamstring injuries. And so that if you trade him, Ted Nine is November the first. If you trade him and Collins is not ready to come back, you got you got Chris Moore, Philip Dorsett, Tyrone Johnson, Tyler Ugh. Johnson, and you're trying to help Davis Mills. That's yeah. not going to work. That's brutal. Your your leading tight end is Jordan Akins, who's played well, but he's Jordan Akins. You know, like he was any team could have had him a month ago. <laughs> you know, they could have plucked him off the Texans practice squad if they wanted to. Um, and you know, and we're it, to, to us here in Houston, it feels like the dude is the second coming of Kellen Winslow senior because the tight end position has been so bad. Um, all right. This is from Joe Q. He says, first of all, John, do you want to do over on your for real or Fugazi that I had for you last week on Bailey Zappi, Wally Pipping, Mac Jones after Mac Jones got benched on Monday night football. Do you want to, you said it was Fugazi when I said, that that Bailey Zappi could Wally Pip Mac Jones. Do you still do you still think it's Fugazi? Did you watch the Patriots last night? And see how bad they got beat. Now Zappi played after he came in and did really well. It's still a Fugazi. Okay, all right. So that's your do over. Your do over is you're standing by what you said. I tend to agree with you. Although this Mac Jones thing is getting to be somewhat fascinating there. Um, and then before we get to Joe's other question, as long as we're talking about quarterbacks getting benched. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, one being not desperate at all, 10 being the ultimate desperation move, where do you put Matt Ryan getting benched for Sam Ellinger for the rest of the season in Indianapolis? And in, and Indy openly saying that it's not because Matt Ryan hurt his shoulder. This is a performance thing. Has there been a team that was worse at finding and playing quarterbacks than the Colts have been with Jim Merzay, Chris Ballard, and Frank Reich? Because Matt Ryan was coming off a great game the week before, three touchdowns, no turnovers, they won. Then he had a bad game, and they benched him for a guy that's never taken a snap in an NFL game. Mm -hmm. That would be Sam Ellinger. And then they got uh, Foles as a backup. But that was pretty amazing to me. I just, I'm still stunned that they did it this early in the season, especially with the problems they have in the offensive line. Yeah. So one to 10, desperation, like a nine. That's the most desperation I, I've seen. Yeah, yeah. So I'll call it a twelve on a scale. What they give a th- they gave up third round three, pick for him. A three for Matt Ryan. How about the fact that John Matt Ryan, Seth, and I were looking up these numbers today on the show. Matt Ryan counts forty million dollars to Atlanta's cap right now. Atlanta's, 
And with the Colts, he's like 24 million or something like that. But next year, or no, he's like 18 million. But next year, he would be 35 million. If he were on the team, he'd be an 18 million dollar dead hit. So it's it's 17 million less expensive in 2023 to not have him than to have him. Um, is Matt, Matt Ryan's done in Indianapolis, right? Like he's he's toast. They're going to have to eat that 18 million dollar dead money hit in the offseason. In other words, they're going to be looking for a new starting quarterback. Are they going to draft one? Do you think, John? Is that a team the Texans need to be concerned about getting into the QB sweepstakes? They don't have a lot of draft choices. They've traded them. And if they, because there might be four or five guys to go in the first round, then you might be able, if they're picking in the middle of the pack yeah. or a little above that, still get a quarterback without packaging picks. But you think they're going to stink the Colts now? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Like you think they're picking top 10. The reason is I read a breakdown of their team by Zach Kiefer, who's covered them forever. And he said the problems on offense start up front. You know, they used two years ago, they had a great offensive line. Last year, they had a good one. I don't know what's happened, but he said it all starts up front. And Ryan had been sacked a lot in Atlanta, and he gets sacked a lot there. Ellinger's a runner. He, he'll he run away from some of those sacks. But, man, oh, man, if they – if they uh, the only way I could see them finishing in the middle of the pack was if Jonathan Taylor – comes back and runs against the eight-man fronts yeah. and leads the league in rushing like he did last year. But right now, they got big problems on offense. Yeah, well, as a fantasy owner of Jonathan Taylor, that would be nice if they would actually try that. I would appreciate them handing him the football once in a while. That would be great. Um, other question from Joe Q, John. Is it coincidental? This is interesting. Um, are you friendly with Larry Fitzgerald's dad? No. Okay. He's a journalist, right, up in Minnesota? Right. Yeah. He's been a sports writer up here for a long time. Is it coincidental or not that Larry Fitzgerald's dad was a sports writer and Larry is one of the most revered players of this generation? Do you think it's a coincidence or do you think that maybe Larry – who Larry Fitzgerald's not like Antonio Brown where he's done a bunch of things off the field where he gets the benefit of the doubt. Like Larry Fitzgerald, by all accounts, is a great human being. But I, I do think, John – well – I'll get my opinion in a second. Go ahead and answer the question. Do you think that Larry Fitzgerald, uh, that his dad's relationship to uh, to the writing community and football has anything to do with how Larry Fitzgerald is viewed? I think, first of all, his parents raised him right. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. And I think the fact that his dad spent so much time in locker rooms and Larry spent a lot of time in locker rooms in Minneapolis – when he was a kid and he got to be around athletes and he saw him, but he is a, he is a first class guy who everybody respects and whether that's, it's partly him, partly his family, you know, he, they, he's, a, he's one of the all time great, not just wide receivers, but one of the all time great people. Do you, where is, where does Larry Fitzgerald as for you as somebody who's part of the hall of fame selection committee, where does he fit into the Hall of Fame framework? Is he a Hall of Famer? If so, is he a first ballot? Is he a further down the road, got to wait his turn ballot? Where's Larry Fitzgerald for you? First ballot. First ballot Hall of Famer. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, John, have you ever looked and seen how many times he's made all pro and things like that? I, like, I know he's, he's compiled a lot of stats, and he was a great player early in his career. I think you'd be a little surprised by his overall resume. And I know he was on the 75th anniversary or whatever, the all decade, not 75th anniversary, but like the all decade team. But 
I don't know. Like he, like Andre Johnson's had more great seasons than Larry Fitzgerald has had. I think Larry Fitzgerald's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Okay, all right. Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I totally agree. I think he's Hall of Famer, but boy, I, I just think Andre Johnson. He's coming up in another year or two. So we'll, we'll find see. out. We'll find out. So you think, yeah, I mean, and and obviously, like, who else is up that year factors into that sometimes. Like, first ballot. Like, there was that year two years ago, John, where there were no first ballot guys. So it feels like you guys kind of cleaned out the pipes a little bit, putting some some folks who'd been waiting a while to get in, right? Yeah, that was this year. When, was that uh, this year? Andre, yeah, when I thought DeMarcus Ware was a lock. Yes. And then I thought Andre had a good chance, and we didn't put any – uh, first ballot guys in there. Now I think Joe Thomas and Darrell Revis are first time eligibles. I think they're locks and I think DeMarcus will get it. And I hope Andre gets one of those last two spots. He, he, made, he made the cut to 10, which was good, but he did not make it to five. And if you make it to five, it means you're going to get in there. If uh, what kind of pilgrimage do you think we'll see from uh, Houston Texan fans? If Andre Johnson makes the hall of fame, Think the traveling Texans? Yeah, I think there'd be a whole lot of people going to Canton. I do too. I do too. Looking at it right now, Larry Fitzgerald. Okay, eleven-time Pro Bowler. That's pretty good. For only one-time first-team All-Pro though. That's like he. I don't know. A Hall of Famer for sure. I just depends on who the other receivers were. Yeah, 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 yeah. True, true. Yeah, there's more nuance to it than just he played with. He played with bad teams, and when he. When they finally got to the Super Bowl, he had best playoffs of any receiver I've ever seen. That's good. He was good. When he was in the postseason, he was productive. That is true. Uh, All right, last one, John. Let's finish with an Astros one here. This is from Milton in Greenway Plaza. With Thanksgiving a month away, which three Yankees are you most thankful for? (laughs) (laughs) Aaron Boone, number one, because of all the decisions – he made it backfired. Okay. Aaron Judge for not hitting any home runs like he did in the two games the Yankees won during regular season. Yep. And um boy, let me think a minute. I guess Glaber Torres for the bad throw to second base on mine. for the era that helped him win the last game. My three were Torres for that. So I'll replace Torres with Nestor Cortez, who decided to stay in the game with a possible groin injury and give up uh, two walks to Maldonado and Altuve and then a home run to Pena, which completely took the air out of the Yankees' sails at the beginning of game four. My other two are a couple of windmills, John. Matt Carpenter, 10 at-bats, one hit, seven strikeouts, and Josh Donaldson, 13 at-bats, 10 strikeouts. Like, when you – and it felt like, John, it felt like – especially early in the series where they had Carpenter and Donaldson batting back to back with each other fairly for two guys that suck fairly high up in the lineup. I think they were batting like fifth and sixth in game one, something like that. It felt like every time you needed a big strikeout, the Astros did one of those guys came up and they obliged and it was awesome. John, I am so thankful for the two of them that I'm going to go to their front the, the, the front porches of their houses and I'm going to put a, a long table and a big turkey in the middle and I'm going to wear a pilgrim hat and I'm just going to sit there and scream how thankful I am. I'm going to start at Carpenter's house and I'm going to end at Donaldson's house and I am going to have a Thanksgiving feast in both of their front yards because I'm so thankful that those two suck asses both play for the Yankees. I am I am thrilled that both of them are Yankees. So very that's, thankful. That's why Aaron Boone should be at the top of the list because it was his decisions to put them where he did. Yeah. Yes, Yes, but but 
I like Donaldson sucks, but like, what do they do? <laughs> you know, like, so like, this is, this is a little like the, the Texans defensive front seven argument right now where people are like, Oh, lovey has got to coach him up. Lovey this, lovey that with it. The, they have sucky players. Like that's not on, that's not on lovey. It's technically that's on Casario. And even with Nick, I, there's only so this team was so bad that he inherited. There's only so many things that he can fix, you know, with, with young players in an off season. If we're still having conversations about the Texans being the worst in the league in certain areas next season, then, you know, then the serious Casario conversations start at that point. But to the Yankees, I, I almost feel like it's a Cashman issue as much as it is Boone. Like I, if Boone had just left the lineup the way it was in game one and just stuck with it, because people are criticizing him for panicking because he was shuffling the lineup around and things like that. I'm like, all right, well, if he had left it the way it was, you guys would be saying, do something. You can't just sit and watch. They, they just, I don't know. They, boy, for a team that won 99 games, that team sure had a lot of players. And as an Astro fan, I was really happy we're on the New York Yankees the last week or so. Yeah, the guy I'm not thankful for is Bader. That guy was no. unbelievable. I was thankful we don't have to see him anymore. He was a pain that, in the ass. That's the truth. That little bugger. That little red mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah, dude. Got tired uh, of seeing that red mouthpiece. Oh, you and me both. You and me both. All right, John, that's it. This was a good mailbag. This was fun. This was lively. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very, very much. What do you got going on? I have a column on uh, uh, gallerysports.com about the 1980 NLCS in which the Astros blew a 2-1 lead. It was a five-game series back then, and they blew a three-run lead with Nolan Ryan on the mound in the eighth inning. It was the first devastation for Houston fans that I can remember, certainly since I've been here, and uh, brought this Phillies and Astros World Series brought back some bad memories. Did that devastation happen before or after the Mike Renfro no touchdown? Renfro was in 79, but it wasn't like they weren't going to beat the Steelers. Steelers were the best team. Steelers still would have been ahead. This one, the Astros were ahead. They should have won it. They had Nolan Ryan on the mound. And there was no excuse for losing those last two games. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, John, I don't know if you saw my Twitter feed yesterday. I, I tweeted out the YouTube. The, the, that entire game is up on YouTube. The, like the whole game. There's a condensed version of the game, like 20 minutes. And there's a two and a half hour version of the game that's up the entire game. I don't know. I tweeted it out yesterday because uh, it was the it was the feed from Philadelphia like, I guess back then there was the national broadcast, but you were still allowed to broadcast the games locally, too. They don't do that anymore. It's all national stuff for the playoffs. But it's the Channel 17 in Philadelphia feed of the game. And you know who the play-by-play guy is? Uh, Harry Callis. Harry Callis, the, the father of uh, Todd Callis, the Astros play-by-play guy. Harry Callis. Tim McCarver, Richie Ashburn, and yep. Andy Musser were yep. the guys that did their radio broadcast. The national broadcast was Howard Cosell, Don Drysdale, and Keith Jackson. The Astros had Gene Elston, their all-time greatest broadcaster, and they had Larry Durker and Dwayne Statz, who went hmm. on to be famous for doing the Cubs. And the national radio had uh, Jack Buck and Jerry Coleman. So they were Hall of Famers at every level of the broadcast crews. That's crazy. That is that is absolutely wild. I just remember the game being on ABC nationally because I lived in Connecticut at the time. I just remember the ABC 
feed. And that's uh, so that would make sense. Keith that's Jackson. That's how Cosell and Jackson got on there. And I do not want to see it again. Like when Oilers Buffalo games on NFL Network, people will text me and say, hey, the Oilers Buffalo game is on the NFL Network. And mm-hmm. I respond with two words. The second one's you. And Bruce Matthews told me, I did an event with him recently, and he says every time it comes on and people remind him, he watches it. Mm. I said, why? He said, because I keep thinking if I watch it enough, we're going to win. <laughs> yeah, a, a tragedy, a sports tragedy like that will involve a lot of delusion to try to wash it away from your brain. That's John, I think that's really nice that when people share it with you, you say thank you to them. It was really nice. <laughs> I guess that's what I'll start doing. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, so we are done. A uh, big thanks to Figgy Fig for getting this out of this uh, episode and all the episodes out to you. We always end up going a little longer than I think we will, but that's because I enjoy these conversations and enjoy your questions. Again, if you want to email in H-O-U mailbag at gmail.com, H-O-U mailbag at gmail.com. We appreciate everybody who sent in questions, even the ones that didn't get read. Just because they don't get read on this episode doesn't mean that they aren't being stored in a folder in my Gmail somewhere for use on future shows. So keep sending them in. It may wind up on the pod someday. H-O-U mailbag at gmail.com. John, I enjoyed it as always. Looking forward to looking ahead to the Titans and a little for real or fugazi with you tomorrow. Thanks very much, Sean. It's a fun as always. All right, good stuff. That's the Hall of Famer, John McClain. I'm Sean Pendergast, and we are out of time. We will see you all tomorrow previewing Week 8 and the Tennessee Titans coming to town against the Texans a little for real or for Gazy. Hope you enjoyed this mailbag. Have a great day, everybody.